So, this week I was meant to be speaking on Ephesians 4, but uh, I uh, didn't have time to prepare, so I'm speaking on Galatians 4 instead. And as you can see, I actually gave this sermon in 2017, so you might have heard it before, so I apologise if you have, but if you, if you have, let it be a chance to uh, refresh, that's it. Um, I want to tell you a story about having a goal. It's about a car. Now, I know very, very little about cars, but I've read about this one, the, the Pinto. This is a f- photo of a Ford Pinto. Very popular car in the United States in the 70s. And it was built, designed in a time when there was a lot of competition in the car market. The CEO, at, at the time, by the way, people wanted small, cheap light cars. That was what people in America were after. It's changed a bit, hasn't it? The CEO of Ford at the time was a man named Lee Iacocca. And his goal was to build a car for under $2,000 that was less than £2,000. That was his vision, his goal. He had some product objectives for his car, which were that it would be truly compact, extremely cheap, and superior in comfort and performance. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, it would normally take four years to go from original idea to production of a car. But Lee, the CEO, set a two-year time limit. So his uh, people had two years to make a car under $2,000 that was under £2,000. And so there was a really rapid design period. And after that design period, they set up the factory at the same time as they were doing safety testing. Now, normally you'd do safety testing first and then set up the factory, once you know you've got the design right. But because they wanted to save time, they got straight into the factory setup while doing the safety testing. Unfortunately, the safety testing <coughs> didn't give the all clear. Testing showed that when the car was hit from behind, even when it was quite low speeds, there was a high chance the fuel tank would, would leak, causing an explosion. So that left the engineers and designs with two possible courses of action. One, go back to the drawing board, delay the production of the car, run the risk of blowing out the $2,000 cost and £2,000 limit. Or just push on and reach the goal. So the designers and the engineers decided on the latter option, push on and reach the goal, rather than go back to the drawing board. No one even told Lee, the CEO, about the problem. When asked years later about it, one of the engineers said this, Heck no, we didn't tell Lee that person would have been fired. Whenever a problem was raised that meant a delay in the Pinto, Lee would chomp on his cigar, look out the window and say, read the product objectives and get back to work. So the Pinto sold really, really well. It was the best thing since sliced bread. It was a very popular car and it remained quite popular for a number of years. But there was a cost, a terrible cost. One afternoon, 1978, three teenage girls uh, driving... Uh, 18-year-old Judy Ulrich, her younger sister and her cousin, driving to a church volleyball match. Judy had just filled up the car with petrol, driven off, when she suddenly thought, hold on, I wonder, did I put the fuel cap on? So she slowed down to check. The man in the van travelling behind her didn't notice her slowing down because he was too busy trying to pick up the cigarette he had dropped. In the blink of an eye, there was a collision. And instantly... The car exploded. 
Two of the girls died straight away um, at the scene of the accident. The third, badly burnt, hung on to life for eight hours before succumbing to her burns and dying. These girls weren't the only ones who died in the fire, uh, or in fires. About 100 people died from explosions in the Ford Pinto. Perhaps not all of these deaths would have been preventable, even if the Ford had gone back to the drawing board and redesigned the Pinto, but we're never going to know that. It was a great goal, wasn't it, for the Ford Pinto? Build a car to sell for less than $2,000 that weighed less than a tonne. That was a really good goal. But somewhere along the way, something went wrong. And although the goal was reached, look at the consequences. Look at the cost. So we all have dreams and goals, don't we, in our lives? We all have something we want to achieve. That's part of being a human. One of my dreams was to travel when I was younger. And so shortly after Nicole and I married, we spent a year backpacking around the world. Then we travelled again more recently and lived three years in the UK. I feel really blessed that we had that chance to achieve that goal. And each of you, of course, have your own goals, your own dreams. Anyone want to share a goal or a dream that's important to them? Maybe I can put Atalia on the spot, having just finished Year 12. I haven't finished yet. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Apologies. Let's make the goal to finish Year 12. (laughs) Sorry, you're 18, I guess. It makes me think you've made it. Any goals? Skiing in Japan. Let's go. Skiing in Japan. Good one. Any other goals? Bringing our families to the Lord. Showing your family God. Yep. Mel. I don't have a goal, but I remember Lee out of Coca. Oh, yeah? Uh, he had a, a commercial on television, and it stuck with me all these years. He said, lead, follow, or get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like that sort of man, doesn't he? <laughs> Any other goals people want to share? Kids. To have kids? Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's a good goal. <laughs> Very important goal. <laughs> so there are plenty of, of smaller goals like going to Japan, bigger goals like having kids, aren't there? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we all have goals. Some big, some small. Some like finding a job we love or finding a partner, a wife, a husband to spend the life with. These are big picture goals that look to a positive future. These are the sort of life goals that are part of what it means to be a human. They've always been part of what it means to be a human. People's hearts through the ages have been filled with these sort of ambitions. And just like our hearts can ache today when these goals aren't realised... Their hearts in the ancient world also ached when their goals weren't realised. So with this in mind, let's travel back almost 4,000 years to the lands of the Middle East. It was a place of vast, semi-arid lands where shepherds herded sheep. It was also a place where the first villages and towns popped up, followed by the first kingdoms and empires. And the Bible's full of stories about the people of this time And we can glimpse their hearts in these stories, what they valued, what their goals were. So if you were living back then in the Middle East, what do you think your greatest ambition in life would have been? If you haven't heard this sermon before, what do you reckon? What would have been your greatest ambition? Skiing down that mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Finding a waterfall. (laughs) Finding water. (laughs) Good. 
getting some sort of place to live. Staying unspotted from the world and staying serving God. Yep, serving Rather God. Than serving the devil. Yep. Which were the two choices back then. Yep, and today I guess. Yep. Pioneer. Being a pioneer. Family. So in the ancient world, actually, one of the critical and probably the number one goal for most people was to have a son. Having children is something that's a really important goal for a lot of people today. But even so, there isn't that same overwhelming hope to have a son that there was in ancient times. We're fist bumping each other here in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. You 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 were um, realizations of of your of goals of other people, <laughs> um, and it was specifically a son back in the ancient world. Um, it's not something that's as important to us today, but for them that was the goal in life for almost all people. I guess people everywhere though still want to have a legacy. We all want to remember, be remembered, don't we, and leave something in this world. We want to have made an impact. As a person gets older, it's perhaps something that he or she thinks about more and more. And this was part of the reason that they had this inbuilt desire in the ancient world to have a son. Because a son would carry on the family name. A son would continue the family business. And a son meant the family had a future. But it wasn't just the family legacy that an ancient Middle Easterner was thinking about. He or she was also thinking about security in older age. As we get older, we become less independent, don't we? And we become less able to care for ourselves. I see it in my hospital job all the time. Time creeps up on every person. Before you know it, he's too old and frail to care for himself and he needs someone else to do so. That was another of the key reasons why in the ancient world people wanted a son. Son was your security into the future when you were old and frail. The son's family would help care for you. There was no greater hope in the ancient Middle East than to have a son. That was the greatest fear that people had, that they wouldn't have a son, that they'd be childless. So this brings us to the story of Abram, who later changed his name to Abraham almost 4,000 years ago. Abraham's one of the most important biblical figures because he was the father of the Jewish people. He was the first man that we can see in the Bible who showed us that trusting in God is what brings about our righteousness. Genesis 15 at the start of the Bible tells the beginning of the story of Abraham. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Don't be afraid. I will protect you. I will reward you. But Abram replied, Sovereign Lord, what good are your blessings when I don't even have a son? Then the Lord said to him, You will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Look into the sky, count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So you can see straight away how important having a son was to Abram. God had just promised him protection and great blessings. And how did Abraham respond? Not how I would have responded. How would you respond if God told you, I'm going to make you wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. I'm going to give you a long and prosperous life where nothing's going to harm you. How would you respond? I think the natural response for me would be to fall on my knees and say, wow, thanks God. But that wasn't Abram's response. 
I think his response was pretty bold. Instead of thanking God, he challenged God and said, what good are your blessings? I don't even have a son. Abram's response shows us what he actually really cared about, what was his main goal in life. Riches and blessings weren't what his heart was set on. For him, having a son was his greatest desire. And his heart ached because he didn't have one. And I'm sure his wife Sarai had an aching heart too. This is an ache that I know a little bit about because I remember a time before Nicole and I had children and we really wanted to have children. Nicole had always felt that one of her callings in life was to be a mum. And I felt similarly, but perhaps not as strongly, and obviously as a dad. (laughs) Anyway, the time came when we decided to have a baby. Nicole cut right back her working hours in the hospital and decided against undertaking many years of specialist training so that she could have children. And then we waited. It didn't seem to happen. Month after month passed and she didn't fall pregnant. Emotionally, it was pretty difficult. There was this deep-seated desire for her to have a baby and it didn't happen. And the months turned into the years and then into another year. And more than once, we called out to God for Nicole to get pregnant. And of course, in our story, this prayer was answered with first Matthew and then Simon and Annie. There are a lot of people who have this desire to have children, aren't there? And a lot of people have prayed to God for that. And for some people, it doesn't happen. That's how Abram felt. And I think he had probably been praying to God and he felt God hadn't come through and answered his prayers. And so... What good were God's blessings? God knew about this ache of Abraham. And God had plans to fill the void in Abraham's life. God had plans for Abraham to have son, a son. And so God shared this plan with Abraham here in his words. He promised him he would have a son. So the story of Abraham continued. There was a problem though. Just like for me and Nicole, time passed and Sarai didn't fall pregnant. Abraham and Sarai were getting old. And they began to think it was absurd that Sarah would ever be able to have a child. But Abraham still, had, of course, had his eyes set on that goal of having a son. And so he dreamt about this son. And so he and his wife decided to take matters into their own hands and bring about the goal, their goal in their own way. So picking up the story where we left off, this is what happened next. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. So go sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have a child through her. And Abram agreed. I don't know about you, but I look at that story and think, what on earth were they thinking? What was Abram thinking? What was Sarai thinking? Did they really think this was going to turn out well? We can get so focused on our goal that we sometimes miss something really important along the way to that goal. (coughs) Let's um, take a detour here. I'm going to show you a video. This is a test of selective attention. Count how many times the players wearing white pass the basketball. (laughs) How many passes did you count? The correct answer is 15 passes. But did you see the gorilla? Yeah. 
<laughs> Lots of people don't. <laughs> uh, look, I'm like Sasha. The first time I saw this video. The first time I saw the video, I, I didn't see it either. <laughs> About 50% of people, the first time they watch this, do not see the gorilla. So if you saw it, you're in the 50% who do. <laughs> We're so busy thinking about the goal though, aren't we, that we miss the other things that are going on. We miss really important events along the way. And this is what Abram and Sarai were doing here. Their goal was to have a son. God had promised that this would happen. So instead of trusting God to come through on his promise, Abram decided to sleep with his servant. And amazingly, his wife actually suggested it. If they stopped to think about this some more, would they have really thought this was a good idea? They wouldn't have thought this was a morally reasonable thing to do. And on a deeper level, did Abram really think, what do you think this would say about his faith in God, his trust in God, to actually deliver on his promises? And in any case, how, how did they think they were going to feel, or Sarah particularly was going to feel, once Hagar became pregnant? It seems absolutely crazy, doesn't it? Anyway, this is how it panned out. So, Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. When Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. Abram replied, look, she's your servant. Do what you want. So Sarai mistreated Hagar so much that Hagar finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness and said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, she replied. The angel said to her, return to your mistress, submit to her authority. You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. But this son of yours will be a wild man, and un- as untamed as a wild donkey. He'll raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he'll live in open hostility against all his relatives. Then Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. So Hagar gave Abram a son and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old. I guess it didn't turn out as Abram had hoped or expected, did it? Yeah, he had a son. He'd reached his goal, but at what a cost. Surely this wasn't the way God wanted it to be. It took 13 more years, though, for this to become clear. In Genesis 17 and 21, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully, live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you'll be called Abraham. for You'll be the father of many nations. I'll confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is an everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Abram bowed his head and thought, how can Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, may Ishmael live under your special blessing. 
But God replied, no, Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac. I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. I love this story. It's one of the great miracles in the Bible, isn't it? A man, a hundred, a woman, ninety, have a son together. Only the intervention of God could do that. That's an impossibility without God. It's interesting to me, though, that it took 13 more years after the birth of Ishmael for Sarah to become pregnant. Why did God wait so long to bring Sarah pregnancy? I wonder if God was actually waiting for Abraham to really fully place his trust in him. Perhaps it took 13 more years for God to give Abraham the faith he needed. Maybe that's how long it took Abraham to be at a place where he could really trust God to to deliver on his promise. When Abraham slept with Hagar, he was trying to reach the goal of having a son through his own ideas, his own power. It didn't turn out very well. When Abraham waited and lived God's way, faithful to his wife, trusting that he would reach his goal through God's power and not his own, everything turned out right. This is a key message in the story of Abraham. And that leads us to Galatians 4 in the New Testament. Galatians 4.22 spoke about the story of Ishmael and Isaac. And I want to focus on that one section we read earlier. This is what's written in Galatians 4.22.23. The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. We've talked about goals and ambitions. And you've shared some of your goals earlier. For Abraham, his greatest goal was to have a son. As Christians, though, we're called to a different key goal in life. We all have secondary goals and and they're good. All our other goals are good. But ultimately, our one key goal as a Christian is, or at least should be, to know God. To intimately know him, to be with him in in the present here and therefore into eternity and heaven. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul wrote about this goal in a beautiful passage of poetry in Philippians chapter 3. I press onward to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their gods, their stomach, their glories in their shame. Their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is of heaven. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they'll be like his glorious body. What more beautiful goal is there for us than to be with God and our Christian brothers and sisters into eternity in heaven? That's the goal for us as Christians That's where we're headed as followers of Jesus. 
That's where all churches and all people who belong to God are headed. Knowing this helps us through suffering. It helps me through tough times anyway. Knowledge of this goal can bring peace in darkness and it can make walking the earthly journey here we've got a joy. What a goal it is. But here's the key point in Galatians. If we think we can earn this goal, make it happen from our own power, then we won't make it. If we think we can get there on our own steam, then it's like the story of Abraham and Hagar. Sure, there's going to be a son, but it's not the son God promised or Abraham hoped for. So this is really hard to understand, this idea that we can't earn the goal of knowing God and receiving eternal life through what we do. I ask myself the question though, shouldn't, shouldn't we be striving to, to live good lives, to do good things, to give to the poor, to speak kind words, to meet regularly with other Christians, to be sexually pure, to speak to non-Christians about Jesus? Aren't these all things we should be striving for? Of course, absolutely. But the heart of the matter is this. If we're doing these things because we think that's how we earn our way to the goal of heaven, then we've missed something crucial. We've missed grace. We've misunderstood love. And we think that we're deserving of God's blessings. We misunderstand our need for the cross. And when we start thinking like this, we slowly change for the worse, not for the better. Our hearts gradually become hearts of slavery, not freedom. And our thoughts about others start becoming thoughts of criticism and judgment, not thoughts of mercy and forgiveness. We become the sort of people that Jesus was so critical of when we think that we can earn our way to heaven. I want to tell you a story about a whole denomination. This is a photograph of an Amish family in the United States of America. The Amish, they're well known, aren't they, for their... um, giving up technology, not wanting anything technological, hence the horse and the cart. They're a very conservative group of people, but they actually didn't start life as a conservative group compared to the world around them. They started life in and around Germany 500 years ago, during the time of the Protestant Reformation. They were a movement of Christians who began life when they started reading the Bible in their own language and trying to understand it themselves. They looked around them and they saw that actually a lot of Christians of the day weren't living the way Jesus wanted them to. Christians of the day believed that they could buy forgiveness of their sins with money, that they could receive forgiveness and earn the way to heaven simply through being baptised and having communion, the Lord's Supper. And the Amish at the time, 500 years ago, realised that this was absurd and they repented and they discovered God's grace. Of course, they were persecuted heavily because of their rejection of the status quo. And because they wanted to live Christ-like lives, they never fought back. They were pacifists. They never used violence. And in the end, many of them fled as refugees and settled in the New World, in the Americas. And then something strange started to happen, slowly at first, I guess, and it happened over decades or centuries. They started to forget grace. They started to believe in the idea that they could earn their way to heaven. And over the years, the Amish have become more and more and more rules-based. And get this, as they've become more rules-based, they've become more and more judgmental of members who question the rules. If a member ever decides to deviate from an Amish rule and follow some of the customs of a typical American, you know, like getting a TV or driving a car, 
then you get shunned by the community. You get told you're not going to heaven and you get excommunicated from your family and your friends and you can't see them again. That's what happens when we start believing we can earn our way to heaven. We start treating each other like that. We become children of slavery like Hagar and Ishmael. And that's not the way God has designed for us to reach out to him and to reach our goal of heaven. The way he's designed is actually much better. We are called to be children of faith. It's faith in Jesus that brings us to the goal of heaven. We don't need to worry about how we're going to get to that goal. We just need to trust God. He'll bring us home in his way, in his time. Of course, living by faith and trust doesn't mean forgetting about God and doing whatever we want. And think about Abraham as an example of that. When he trusted God, he did things God's way. He stopped doing things his own way. He became patient and he didn't try to solve his own problems his way. He listened to God and stuck with his wife. He didn't sleep with another woman, which was always God's intention for him. Living a life of faith means trusting God, which means following God and listening to God. And this means focusing on God and not the faults of people or even our own faults. And that alone makes us much kinder people. It's actually much harder to live by faith than it is to live by rules and works. But the reward is infinitely greater. When we live by faith, we become children of faith, like Isaac was. And we know we're going to receive the inheritance that God promises, just like Isaac did. We just don't know how we're going to get there. So think about your goals that we spoke about earlier. Think about what was in your head at the time. What were your goals? You can't achieve these goals properly on your own. You might be able to reach the goal if you rely on your own strength, but it won't be right. It'll mean work and toil that leads to the wrong outcome, even if it's your goal. You can reach your goal properly if you trust God to get there. You let him lead you, his way, his timing. It'll also mean work and toil, but that work and toil will come from a heart of right motives. And this work that springs from a heart of faith will look like this. It will make you look like a person who is generous, who does give to the poor, who does speak kind words, who does regularly meet with other Christians at church, who is sexually pure, who does speak to non-Christians about Jesus. Those are things that will spring from your heart when you're a child of faith. Those works will come from our righteousness, not the other way around. They won't make us righteous. And that makes all the difference. If only the makers of the Ford Pinto had thought more about reaching their goal well, with good hearts, then perhaps many lives would have been saved. If we think more about reaching our final goal well with a more faithful heart, then our life will be saved. So keep being people of faith. Don't be people under a law. Live a life of trust in God and he'll bring us all home. Should we pray?
Thank you, Father, for the stories in the Bible that teach us how to live, how to find life, how to find you. Sometimes they seem so obscure to us or or tinted and dark and hard to understand. But there's meaning there behind them, Lord. Open up our hearts to the meaning of your stories so we can get closer to your heart. Amen.